hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My last interview was about palliative care, and I turned to Dr. Caroline Knox to help us more fully understand what palliative care is. This episode is about hospice care. It is a continuation of my series seeking to understand issues related to medical care and medical ethics. My guests are the Reverends Leah Brown, Kelly Belcher, and Jody Griffin. Leah is presently Associate Pastor, Pastoral Care at First Baptist Church, Asheville, North Carolina, but is a licensed clinical social worker and was a hospice social worker at Care Partners Hospice and Palliative Care from 1994 to 2007. Kelly is an ordained minister and endorsed chaplain with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. She works as a hospice chaplain in Asheville, North Carolina. You have already met Jody. He was a prison chaplain and part of the panel in my interview on prison chaplaincy. Jody is presently a hospice chaplain in Boone, North Carolina. I am thankful that I can make a correction related to Jody. In the interview on prison chaplain, I had misidentified the church where he is pastor. I am pleased now to get that right. In addition to being a hospice chaplain, Jody is also pastor of Central Baptist Church in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. So welcome, everyone. Thank you for being with me. So let's begin. What is hospice care? Well, David, hospice care is a special kind of medical and emotional and spiritual care for folks who are approaching the end of life. It was developed in Britain by Dame Cecily Saunders in the 70s and 80s. She was a nurse, and she was a nun, and she was a social worker, and she noticed how difficult uh, people had it when they were um, in the care of doctors who wanted to give them curative treatment and wanted to keep them getting better, and they weren't going to get better. They had terminal diseases, or they had a disease that was degenerative, and they wouldn't be able to recover. And she saw how much they suffered, and so she convinced some doctors and nurses there to start a unit in the hospital where she was, and I forgot where um, her hospital was, but um, they started a special unit of care that was called comfort care. And they uh, stopped giving chemotherapy to cancer patients, and they gave them pain medication instead. And patients could wake up, and they could be comfortable and alert, maybe eat a little something, and be present with their families. And so, um, by and large, she invented hospice care in that way. And over time, it's developed, came to the States and to Canada after Britain. And uh, now it's uh, been four decades, just about, um, of time that we've had specialized units of hospice care, either in hospitals or in specialized settings or separate facilities, and hospice care is also delivered in homes and in nursing homes to people uh, directly. So it's meant to be comfort care at the end of life. If a doctor believes it's reasonable to think that you might not live past six months, then you can receive hospice care. And in the United States, if you have Medicare, or Medicaid, you can get it without having to pay for it. So it's a wonderful benefit for people at the end of life. Well, how do you distinguish it from palliative care? What marks it 
off from palliative care. So often with palliative care, what will happen is that folks may still be receiving curative treatment or some types of treatment where the goal is to help keep a person comfortable in the midst of their care and treatment. So that's the distinguishing factor. With hospice care, they're no longer doing curative treatment. Okay. And if a patient uh, or their family says, we want them to have this treatment, if they're on hospice care and and a family says, we want them to have this treatment, then they can have the treatment, but hospice care won't cover it because it's, uh, yeah. I didn't mean to get into that subject that quick, but I'll just tell you that it's a very moving kind of thing to have to say, you know, then you need to be on hospice and they won't be able to have any of these particular curative uh, uh, interventions. So Sometimes people have chronic health conditions that aren't going to get better, but they aren't going to kill them. They're not fatal. And so they need palliative care to be able to live as well as they can uh, for for the rest of their lives. Um, But a doctor may come to you and say, um, we've done everything we can. There's nothing else we can do. And hospice is the what else we can do. It's the something more that can be done to provide comfort and make quality of life high for people when doctors don't have any more treatment for them. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, So how did each of you come to be involved at the time that you have done uh, in hospice care? I've been in hospice care as a chaplain since April of 2022, April the 1st. So I'm pretty new to it, but I came to it after a lifelong desire to, to serve in that way that was amplified back in the late 90s when I was a cancer patient and had to make decisions and choices about uh, the future and about my family and, uh, you know, just the ways that I wanted to look at the time that I thought at the time I had remaining. And my doctor told me I was very sick. And... Um, so it's very personal for me, and I'd always thought that would be something I could do because I would understand. Um, so I got the opportunity and jumped on it, uh, and my little church said, go for it. So I've been doing it now for since April and uh, just have found it to be one of the most rewarding and meaningful and moving things in my life. Leah or Kelly? Sure. Well, I came to hospice care directly out of graduate school. So I completed my master's in social work, and I had done some studying about um, end-of-life care and found that very interesting. Uh, But I had always wanted to work um, primarily with a geriatric population. And while hospice cares for everyone at every stage of life, primarily you work with a lot of geriatric patients. And so Um, I was very excited to come to that work, so I did um, hospice social work for 13 and a half years. Okay. And I also um, was a cancer patient in 2010, and after that, um, spending intense time in the bed, boy, did I want to get on the other side of the bed, (laughs) and and was it um, attractive to me to become... um, involved in medical chaplaincy. And so I did hospital chaplaincy, and then an opportunity came for me to do hospice care. 
And it was uh, delightful to be in that moment with people because it's uh, a sacred time for people sometimes. And I, I was uh, just kind of fell in love with it. We'll talk a little bit about uh, a typical day. And I know there's no such thing as a typical day, but uh, kind of talk about what you do, what you did uh, during your time in hospice care. And it kind of depends on where you're delivering the care. Um, If you're in an inpatient facility, you arrive on the unit when it's time for your shift to start, and you take care of everybody on the unit during the course of the day. And that can mean having long conversations with people who need to work something out spiritually or emotionally. It can mean attending to family members who are grieving ahead of time. Um, It can mean um, helping people make the decisions about what's going to happen to the house and the car and um, how are we going to make sure education happens for kids. Um, It can also be giving people just a few minutes of comfort by reading the Bible or whatever um, their faith practice gives them a comfort reading, to offer a prayer together or to sing a song, and just to listen, mostly just to listen and to hear the story of the person and to hear what's important to them and how you can help them use what's important to them as a tool for spiritual comfort and for peace and for acceptance. One of the things that uh, comes to my mind in answer to that question of what do you do during the day, we start and end each day uh, as an interdisciplinary team uh, in conversation with one another uh, about the patients that we serve and so that we can best address their needs, be it from the social work side of the house or the chaplain side of the house or the nursing side of the house. Um, and everything we, ha- we do uh, has to be directed by orders, uh, medical orders, and they come, they're signed off by a physician. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's a well-oiled machine, I would call it, uh, hopefully. And uh, I know where I serve, I feel that way every day. I'm like, wow, uh, how this all came together is pretty amazing. It really is. But I've learned to appreciate the contribution of each cog in the wheel. And uh, so social work is, is precious to me. I love the social workers that I work with. I see what they do and the way they help patients and their families. Um, I watch nursing, and I see what they do for, nur- for their patients and their families. And um, even, the, even the administrative team has such a valuable role because they help keep the paperwork straight. And, you know, all of these other things that Medicare kind of runs the show, uh, and, and, and it's just difficult to see sometimes that um, the – the wheel's not turning quite as efficiently as you would like for it to. So uh, you can call upon your coworkers, your team members, and uh, somebody's going to be there to pick up where, you, where your expertise ends. There's going to be somebody to pick up and, and do their part and really provide quality care for patients. That's what it's all about for patients and their families. This is about people. And, uh, you know, it could be us as we've, a couple of us have already mentioned. So, And as a social worker, David, and in hospice care, my primary role was to do an evaluation to see what services might be needed um, for a patient either in their home 
or in uh, an inpatient facility or at a, at a facility like a nursing home. And so I uh, did a lot of resource coordination, making sure that things were as they needed to be for that patient and family so that they would have all the resources uh, to provide care in the home or in the facility. I did a lot of crisis intervention work um, with patients and families, um, did a lot of uh, anticipatory grief work with families so that they would be getting used to the idea that the death was coming for their loved one, did a lot of anticipatory grief work for the patient themselves um, as they made uh, those transitions in their care. Um, I did a lot of crisis intervention. So uh, you might set your day and think, well, these are the four (laughs) visits I'm going to go make today or the five visits, and then some crisis might happen. And what that meant is that if another team member uh, called me, then my day would get turned upside down, and then I would go and deal with the most immediate need. Uh, So always in hospice care, if there is an issue that comes up for a patient or family, then that's dealt with very immediately. And that's a reason I love hospice care so much is because uh, it happens very directly for what a person needs and what the family needs. So that might be the day in the life of a a hospice social worker. Kind of like a firefighter. Like a firefighter. Mm. Always, though, the gift of um, interdisciplinary care is that you really have an opportunity to learn so much from the other folks on your team. And so uh, that gave me a wealth of knowledge that I use today, even in my ministry at First Baptist. Well, because you, you rattled through the, the, the what, who comprises the team again? Oh, that's uh, I, I, I was talking about the medical side of the house. You have. Uh, a doctor, you have nurses, uh, you have um, like RNs, and then you have LPNs, and then you have CNAs uh, and AIDS. And what they do is they provide the the hands-on personal medical care. Uh, Social workers provide the uh, emotional support and the practical side of the the challenges that they face with finances and and insurance or Medicaid, Medicare or Medicaid or whatever, all those different things. And then you have the spiritual side of the house, which is the chaplain's responsibility. And, uh, and I think it's important that we appreciate each other and that we, and that we have this attitude of we're here. And when we come together and when we function effectively, we're helping this patient and this family at the most difficult time of their lives. And another aspect of hospice team care, that's called the interdisciplinary group. And we must get together every week and discuss all of our patients so that we each hear each other's report from our particular discipline side. So we stay very much on the same page in the care that we're giving day to day, hour to hour to patients. And that's helpful to the patient and the family because it's very hard for us to miss something. Um, since we're, we're talking about everybody so regularly. Okay. And maybe one other aspect to add is that often uh, there are folks in the community who act as volunteers for hospice, and so those are trained volunteers who might sit with a patient um, while a family takes some respite time to go run errands or do some other things, um, and also to just give some support uh, to a patient and their family. So I think they're an invaluable 
team member as well. Sometimes you might have a physical therapist, occupational therapist, or speech therapist if there are specific things that will help provide more comfort for that patient. So uh, that also can be part of the hospice team. Yes, I truly appreciate you bringing that up because I've only been with it, like I said, for since April. And because of COVID, volunteers weren't allowed. And so I've been watching this operate and, and seeing these professionals do double duty in a lot of places where they're trying to almost provide supports that volunteers would, su- would supply. And uh, now I'm excited about seeing volunteers get back involved, get back engaged, and really take some of that load off of my team members. So, Well, now I know, you know each of you are Christians, but how do you or how does the system handle the context of, of non-Christians? Uh, and then, like, how did you all uh, do that um, other than Christian? Like, are there rabbis and imams and those kind of things that are, or do you also find yourself in context where you're dealing with a Muslim family or a Buddhist family? Then we're a resource person. We try to help them make connections uh, with persons of the faith that they, that they are a part of the faith community and kind of help encourage them to be engaged. If that family has that desire, Um, then we, we work to serve them. I think would be a, the best way to say that. And the best way to serve them would be to provide for them the resources that are most meaningful to them, spiritually speaking. When I first meet a family um, and a patient, one of my first things to find out is, do you have the support of a church or a synagogue or a temple? Um, do you have a minister who comes to visit you? Is your church family aware that you've become a hospice patient and that your life is getting ready to change and they might need to step up their attention to you? Uh, many people in the mountains um, are going to the same church their granddaddy built 100 years ago, and they are loved and have wonderful support, and they might not need me to contact them very often. And I'm still just going to keep an eye on them to make sure they're getting what they need. Um it's always a choice for the patient and the family to have a chaplain uh, provide spiritual care for them because many people really don't need anything from me directly. But I have a little black book full of names of priests who will come to provide the sacrament of the sick mm-hmm. for an end-of-life patient who's Catholic and needs to receive that right. And I know a couple of wonderful rabbis who will come and provide care and offer uh, their services to sit shiva with um, the family after the patient dies. I have a wonderful shaman who's Cherokee who will come and provide beautiful care to uh, Native American patients we have. We have Muslim patients, and we're in touch with um, a faith leader for them. We have Buddhist patients, and there's a wonderful Buddhist community here. We've had Baha'i patients, and there's also a strong Baha'i community where I live. So there's really no kind of person that can't um, be connected with something that might give them some support if that's what they choose. And then there's also lots of people who are not religious at all. And this may be the biggest um, misconception about spiritual care in hospice, uh, because my job is to listen and to find out what it is that you uh, find as your ultimate concern or the most important thing to you 
the hopes and dreams that you have, the fears you have, and what you hope your legacy will be. And so I can come alongside and listen to those things and help you feel the same kind of peace, I hope, and acceptance about how your life is ending and be comfortable with it, regardless of whether you're a religious person. So I'm not, um, I'm not here to um, save souls, really. Only mm. Jesus can do that, not me. <laughs> and uh, I'm here really to provide um, the support that helps you do your best to be comfortable. And we meet you where you are, wherever that is. Um, and I appreciated so much those words because uh, just this past week, I had an experience with a, a patient who uh, has really no belief. And uh, it, we, we sort of arrived at the fact that you might use the word agnostic, uh, and that was their word. Um, but that patient um, was received by me as someone who says, that's fine. I'm just honored to be with you on this journey. And it's really a privilege to be able to be here and to walk beside you and to care for you, uh, to provide uh, spiritual support. And you might say, wait a minute, you just said they didn't have belief. It's still spiritual. Uh, and I think that it's important that the respect and the honor to every person, to me that's the essence of hospice care, is that you honor the person, every person, in whatever time they have remaining. I think one other thing that I saw happen when I was um, a social worker in the inpatient unit of the hospice that I served is that I needed um, at times to also make sure that people from the outside didn't feel like it was their duty to go and proselytize to every room in our facility because of all the things that we've talked about here. Self-determined care is really important. And so we had... Um, people of all faith backgrounds and people with no faith background. And so it was important for me to serve as that uh, person who, who kept uh, holding the line so that folks uh, who didn't want to have that happen in their room, you know, were supported. So, so what do you think uh, folks need to know? What are the, the major issues uh, relating to their own possible future care uh, that they need to know about hospice care. You know, David, a thing that I think is so important for folks is that they think about these issues well ahead of any life-limiting illness that they might anticipate having. So if you um, have not made a healthcare power of attorney where you've named a person who will make decisions for you if you're not able to, or if you've not made a living will, which helps um, medical providers know what happens in the case of um, a life-limiting illness. And if you're not able to be decisional at that point, uh, what kind of care do you actually want? I tell people all the time it's important to put this decision in your hands and not in someone else's hands. And if you don't take time to do those legal documents... Uh, then other people are going to make decisions for you. And it's important to be able to, A, make those decisions for yourself and then communicate them well to your um, family or friends, whoever's providing that um, service for you, and to your physician. Your doctors need to understand what's important to you in terms of treatment and what is not important to you in terms of treatment. And so 
often along the way, uh, when people get a life-limiting illness, uh, they have to make very big decisions about uh, when do I stop this treatment? And so that leads into other considerations like a do not resuscitate order, other things like that. So I think it's very powerful that people, if, if you're an adult of any age, you need to have a healthcare power of attorney and a living will done. And, and people need to understand in hospice care, the patient is the director. The patient is driving the whole plan of care. Mm-hmm. We are doing exactly what the patient tells us to do. And sometimes we, um, we, we cut them loose from care because they want to have a treatment that just as because they hadn't thought about it or because something new came, came to them and they, they decide, you know, I, I would like to try this because it could help me have extra time. So we say, fine see you, uh, you have a, a good uh, treatment, and do better, and if things were to change again so that you needed us, we can, you, we can always take you back into our service. We can take you on and off service as we need to in order to follow what your desire is for your own treatment. As long as a person can speak for herself, that's who we are going to listen to, and it's just in the moment when she can't that it's very nice if the people around her who are obligated to direct her care know for sure what she wants because there's really not a whole lot of greater pain for the family than to be afraid they are making a decision for their mama that mama wouldn't want. And uh, and they they struggle with that if that hasn't been made clear. Right. I th- oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think it also can create such stress within a family when um, that pathway has not been initiated before mama gets sick um, because that's where arguments and uh, dissension in families happen. And I, I see that all the time. So I think it's very important for people to know that, um, you know, if you've not made those decisions known ahead of time, your family may wind up fighting each other about what kind of care is appropriate or their loved one, and that can cause that can cause a rift in the family that never gets healed sometimes. And so, uh, it's a responsibility I think on all of us if we love ourselves and love our families that we take care of doing these documents. Beautifully said. That was in the in the vein of what I was going to say. So, I'll not repeat. Well, kind of as an extension uh, of of that. Um. What about those patients that have challenges or are underage uh, or have, have come into the context uh, unable to make decisions? With dementia yeah. or Alzheimer's yeah. or a traumatic back brain injury or something. Right. So talk about how then decisions are made in those contexts. Well, again, I think, and this is one of the, the things that I, I just love the most about hospice is the whole issue of personal power. When you, when you are in the last days of your life, uh, I think there's no more important time to be able to exercise personal power, to say, yes, I want that, or no, I don't want that, and, and, and it's hard for families uh, sometimes to process that. So I think that, um, I mean, for example, 
I would want to be able to make my own decisions. That's why it's so important that I get these documents in place. And by the way, when I went through my cancer journey, that's the first thing I did. I got a healthcare power of attorney. Uh, you know, I had all those documents drawn up and they're in place and, uh, they've been in place over 25 years. So, but still it's important, uh, to exercise your personal power. And then we respect someone's personal power to be able to honor where they are and what their decisions are and not try to, and to help families understand this is what mama wanted. I think often what happens to David, to your point, is that if a person has not uh, made those documents ahead of time and then they are no longer alert and oriented to make their own decisions, then what happens is um, if they're married, their spouse will be the person who will make that decision. If um, they don't have a spouse, children who are of age can make a decision. If they have no children, it will go to parents if they're still alive, to make a decision. And sometimes I have cared for people who uh, don't have any family in their lives. And so then it becomes uh, an adjudication by the court so that there is a decision maker for that person. Um, so just to answer your question, if people don't do those those documents ahead of time while they're alert and oriented, then those are the ways in which those decisions are made. And often it requires um, a care conference of the whole interdisciplinary team so that uh, you can sit with a family and help them negotiate through all of those issues that are coming up, why we would or wouldn't do a certain treatment, why hospice care might be appropriate. Uh, you know, So those things are very important, and you'll often see a group of people sit together with a family to make a decision if a person didn't have a health care power of attorney or a living will. Mm -hmm. She's right. And these are, and these are painful things. And, and, uh, and if, if the family um, are on the same page about, about things, then it can go pretty well and pretty smoothly. And if they're not, um, it's just a good reason to plan a time to make a big spaghetti dinner, invite your whole family and all of you hash it out now. Go ahead, talk about it now. You could have a, a hospice dinner and just decide, we're all going to talk about this out loud. We're all going to say, well, this is what I would want. Well, this is not what I would want. Well, I want to do it here. Well, I don't want to die in this house. Granddad died in this house. I want to be in the hospital. So um, just have a big spaghetti dinner. Talk it out. Tell everybody now. Write it down. I think another thing that Kelly's saying is so true, I would extend that one more step, which is to go ahead and have the conversation while you can with your family about what you want to have happen for a memorial service, for a funeral? Do you yes. want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? Honestly, that can be such a difficult decision for families to make when they don't know what the person who died, what their, what their wishes were. And so often if you can have that big spaghetti dinner where you're having that whole conversation, go the extra step. And if you really want to get extra credit points, then what you do is that you go now and make your arrangements for your funeral or your memorial service, and you get all of that done. You and can pay come for and it. pay for it, Amen. compartmentalize it, and once it's done, then it's done. And then you tell your family what your wishes are, and you are then finished with that piece that is so hard for so many people. The reality is we are all gonna all going to die, and so if you'll go ahead and make a plan. 
then it won't be so hard. People think if I don't plan for my funeral, it's not going to happen. But it really is going to happen for all of us. So I think it's really important for people to do that. And they're going to sing 10 verses of Amazing Grace if you don't make it clear that you want just as I am. So, um, <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, because what we're really talking about here is grief. It's grief because when, when you know that your loved one is, you know, even yourself, and you know you're dying, which, by the way, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag we're all dying. If you're living, you're dying. It's just a fact. It's a reality. Uh, but I think that grief complicates the dying process so much. That's why hospice care, all these conversations we've been talking about having with our family, having, you know, getting these documents in place and so on and so forth is so important because grief tangles us up. Uh, thinking about having to let go of someone we love so dearly who's given themselves oftentimes to us, who's loved us so much. And it's hard to say, well, I'm ready then to let mama go or daddy or whoever it is, um, or even a child, even a child. Uh, and so, you know, th this whole, this grief means that we who are the professionals, we have to be aware that the folks that we're caring for, are all dealing with that big G grief. And, uh, and it's important that we meet them where they are in the midst of that grief. And in the last um, days and weeks and hours of a person's life, um, if you think about the end of your life, and I hope it's when you're 105, but if you think about it um, and think where you would like it to be and um, who it, would you like to have in the room with you, and what kind of music do you hope they'll play? And what, what flavor candle do you want to smell? And um, uh, who, who do you want to um, be cooking so that you smell the delicious food? And uh, imagine for a minute the last hours and the mm -hmm. last days of your life and how it would be ideal for you if we've done all of this work, if we've prepared people well, then often... The person can get to that moment and be at peace and be comfortable and have their favorites and their dog is at the end of the bed and all of the children have made plans to visit and say goodbye and uh, death can come uh, peacefully and then once it has come, everyone who is in the room can breathe mm. and relax and sit and be with the new reality that has occurred. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of ideal, and it's the idea we start from. How do we get you there? How, what is it you'd like to aim for? And some things might not be possible. It might not be possible for a child to fly from Europe to be here to see you before you die. You might be dying too quickly. Uh, but we can arrange for a FaceTime call if we need to, there are ways that we can give you a second best choice if you can't have your ideal. Um, so we're all, all kind of aiming for that all along. Well, I know that social workers have a, a specific code, uh, but in, in, in the context in which you've been, you serve and are serving, um, what are kind of the ethical guidelines uh, that you follow? Because um, I know ethical dilemmas come up. Uh, so how do you how do you 
address that? I think often, um, as a social worker, I do have a code I follow, but for all of us, confidentiality is the place we start Mm -hmm. and stay. So that means that we're not discussing the people that we're caring for. We don't discuss those with our those folks with our friends or our family um, because confidentiality is so vital to caring well for people. Uh, self-determination is another big important piece to care, which means it's kind of what we've all said before. The patient directs their care. You might disagree with what a patient's going to do. Maybe a patient um, should not be living alone anymore because it's not as safe as we would like it to be. But they have a right to do what they're going to do, and they have a right to make a bad decision. And so often, just making sure you uphold a person's self-determination is really, excuse me, really, really important. It's a beautiful thing to witness, actually. Uh, A patient who's over 100 years old, living in the home they were born in, and um, able to say, I was born here, I'm going to leave from here. Uh, that's that's a, a really beautiful self-determination to be able to witness. And uh, and I've experienced that with them. So, And in terms of spiritual ethics, um, I think I try to be very careful with the patient and the, the world around the patient, the circle of people, whoever they are. Um, sometimes um, the daughter of the patient will um, not be sure he's really saved. And she comes to me in tears and wants me to, to pray with him the prayer of salvation so that she can be sure he's saved. And so at that point, I don't have one patient. I have two. I have the, exactly. the fellow who feels he's perfectly saved and does not need any help from me. And I have his beautiful daughter who loves him dearly and is afraid of hell and needs me to help her remember what she believes in and to pray for her dad um, with her uh, so that I don't mix up the two people and their two very different spiritual needs. Mm. I owe him the respect Mm. of not pressing him even with his daughter's spiritual need. And that gets very complex, mm-hmm. and I, um, I have to keep privacy for both of them. There are a lot of things I know that I'm never going to be able to say. And uh, uh, I think, though, that my respect for him and for his self-determination demands that I do that. One of the things that, uh, that, that kicked a thought in my mind was uh, thinking about patients, usually children, who just have a hard time loosening their grip on their parents uh, and, and, and giving their parents permission. You know, it's okay, Mama. We're, we're, we're going to be all right. Or it's okay, Dad. We're going we're gonna to resolve whatever's been going on, and uh, we're going to still love each other when, when you're gone. And allowing that patient uh, the privilege to have that peace Sometimes that's cap- uh, they're capable of that, those family members. Sometimes they're not. Uh, but uh, I think that I've witnessed people be able to leave in peace because uh, we had spiritual advisors and, and, and uh, social workers there to, who would say, it's okay to tell them, Mama, it's all right to go. We're, we're going we're gonna to be okay, you know. And then there are times of confession. 
Um, so, so sometimes I've been taking care of a patient who needs to tell me something that he did, mm-hmm. uh, that he's never told anyone before. And he doesn't ever want anybody to know, but he needs me to know, and he needs us to pray. Or he just needs another person to know, even if he's not a religious person. Mm-hmm. And so that's a sacrament to mm-hmm. provide for folks, is the, the privacy of confession and forgiveness. Um, and uh, again, that self-determination and absolute confidentiality has got to be present. Well said. What do you think is the intersection between hospice care and the church? I'm living in the intersection between hospice care and the church. So my role as a social worker in hospice prepared me um, for being an associate pastor at our church. And so I am really grateful for um, all of those experiences, all the all that I was taught by all those patients and families uh, that prepared me for what I do every day at First Baptist. So um, I laugh sometimes and think, you know, that folks get two for one because I can't take the social worker out of me and I can't take the hospice work I've done out of me. But I'm grateful for that because it gives me the opportunity to begin those conversations with people in our church so that when I see that things are changing with their health, um, I can help them to make good decisions about what kind of care they want. And sometimes they need aggressive care, and that's what they want to do. And sometimes they really need to be thinking about palliative care and hospice care. And so I'm able to then, um, you know, help guide them towards um, whatever level of care they're, they actually want to have. Um, so I'm grateful for those those learnings I had um, from my previous career, but it helps me every day in what I do in providing care um, to the folks in our church. Spiritual care, again, uh, is honoring the place where the person is and being willing to go there with them and to be present. There's a ministry of presence that's involved with it. Sometimes they're not even conscious when you're with them, uh, or they don't appear to be conscious, I should say it that way. And so it's just being there. It's reaching out in the ministry of touch. Um, All of these things are valuable because that's a human being who needs our love and our tenderness and our care. And I, I, I think of the Lord all the time. You know, I think of the things that, um, as a Christian minister, that, that I value about my understanding of who uh, my Lord is and his being willingness to be able to reach past laws and touch lepers and heal them, to be able to reach past laws and care for and minister to someone who's caught in some you know, dramatic sin or whatever, uh, and the rest of the world's ready to rid them, rid the world of them, um, and to be able to be invited into that, somebody said, used the word earlier, sacred space. It's amazing. It really is what hospice care is. And again, often people have got a church or a temple or a synagogue 
to which they belong, and those folks are giving them good support. They're coming to visit. They've got cards. They've got flowers. They've got casseroles. But often people don't have that. And so if I can connect you with your house of worship and make sure they're aware of the need that might be changing for you, then that's important for me to do. Uh, We want to work as hospice. We want to work with churches and houses of worship to help people get spiritual care directly from their favored community, if we can. And when people don't have one, um, sometimes I can find someone for them and I can provide care myself directly. Um, so it's, um, I, th- I think we're always looking to, to help people be as connected in their own circles as they can be mm-hmm. at this time of life as things shift. And let's be honest, not everyone's comfortable doing that. Not all churches are comfortable doing that. Uh, and or for whatever reason, uh, I've had patients who, you know, whose church and their pastor wasn't going to come. And, uh, and I've had patients weep in my arms because of it uh, and thank me for being present with them. And um, I think one of the things in, in the ministry side of the house is how many funerals uh, we wind up uh, provi- uh, providing the care, the funeral care for the, for the patient because their church, the people were not comfortable ministering to the patient in their last days because it, it's, it's, it's your own mortality shoved in your face when you're watching someone else die. And um, so, I, I, you know, while I know that and I try to give some insight to that into a family's life, uh, I, I can't get them there all the time. I think some of the best care happens when, when I know that one of our church members is now on hospice care, then I get permission from them Mm-hmm. because of confidentiality, I will ask, can you tell me who your hospice chaplain is? And they'll tell me. And often I know who that person is anyway. And <laughs> so I then can reach out and connect. And once a release of information has happened, mm-hmm. then we can coordinate our care so that we're doing an even better job caring for that patient and family. So I think that's a, that's a vital role that um, churches can play People who are providing pastoral care in churches need to be having that conversation with the folks they take care of so that they can uh, interact and be a part of that care. And the hospice caregivers and the church members are not mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. groups. Um, Most of the nurses and doctors and social workers I work with have a church somewhere, and their church members are coming into our care and uh, I'm taking care of them, and they know them. And then we really must be careful with confidentiality mm-hmm. and make sure that we only do things that the patient wants us to do. Yeah, there are a lot of dual relationships in communities, and so you have to be so careful about that. That's another piece of ethical care is that you don't cross those lines without keeping um, confidentiality primary. Well, Cody Sanders is a... Um gay Baptist pastor, married, and he has a a wonderful book uh, called Queer Lessons for Churches on the Straight and Narrow. And in that, he talks about how because of different states' laws uh, that partners are often excluded Mm. from times 
of getting to be with and care for uh, their spouse or their, their partner or loved one uh, during this time. Uh, have any of you had occasions uh, relating to that, that issue? So, David, at a time that I can remember is that when I moved into providing hospice care, it was 1994, um, and at that point, um, people could not marry their partners because there were no laws in place to protect that. And so unless um, same-sex partners uh, had a health care power of attorney in place, then their partner was not a part of their care in terms of decision-making. And so um, what I often saw before the advent of um, the AIDS cocktail, where we knew that we could treat HIV, um, and people were not dying from that anymore, I saw so many people who went through that very issue where um, maybe a partner's parents would step in because they were uh, the technical decision maker for that person. And it was heartbreaking to watch that happen because uh, people may have been uh, in their relationship 15 or 20 years, sometimes 30 years. I watched that happen time and time again. And then, um, you know, their partner couldn't help make a decision as their loved one was dying. And then when the death occurred, they weren't even allowed to make the decision about uh, the disposition of the body. So they couldn't decide, is that person going to be buried or cremated and couldn't follow their loved one's wish because we had legal legally an obligation to reach out to the next of kin. So I'm so glad that uh, there are some protections now in place. Uh, but again, it harkens back to what we spoke about earlier, which is getting those legal documents in place so that you have those protections. Well, hospice care is a demanding ministry, um, and especially emotionally. So how do each of you, how did each of you uh, care for yourself? I cry on a regular basis. I'm alone in the car. I scream sometimes. I have pillows that I beat against the bed. Um, I throw dishes sometimes. I buy little cheap dishes and I have a brick wall and I just let it fly. Throwing eggs at trees in the forest is a good thing to do. Bears love that. So I have to let it out, and I exercise, and I sing, and I walk my dogs, uh, and I cry. Um, because what we do is very sad, and it breaks our hearts sometimes when uh, w the situation is poignant. It also breaks our hearts when we realize something better could be happening, and we're not going to be able mm. to help that happen. Mm. Because people are not going to do what is good for them. And it's hard to make my peace with that sometimes. Um, and it's important for us as chaplains and hospice caregivers to have communities around us that are supportive for us. I know a lot of ministers and chaplains and counselors, and I talk to them on a regular basis. Because in order for me to provide a very intense care to people in a in a uh, excruciating situation, I have to make sure that I'm in good shape and that I'm cared for and that 
my spiritual needs are met and that my emotional uh, demeanor is healthy. Uh, so I'm doing everything I can t- to keep that way. Um, and I'm also, as the chaplain for a hospice group, uh, looking at all of my team members, the doctors, mm-hmm. the nurse practitioners, the nurses, um, the techs, the social workers, the administrators, and because all of us are people and we're all having deaths and surgeries and marriages and births and all kinds of things happen in our own lives too. And so part of my job is to, is to be spiritually caring mm-hmm. for my team and to be aware of my own uh, limits and boundaries and to help them keep theirs. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could add much to what Kelly's just said. Um, it, it is so important for people to understand the role of grief when you're providing this level of care to people. Uh, you will grieve, and if you don't think you're going to grieve, then you would be mistaken about that. Because um, in hospice care, those, for me, when I provided that, that was a shorter amount of time that I was with people because of just the way in which that works. Uh, Generally, you wouldn't have uh, patients for a long period of time. But as a minister in a church, uh, that is a very different experience for me now, because um, I'm providing end-of-life care to lots of people, um, and that becomes end-of-life care for, uh, you know, one person, then their spouse, and then I might take care of other people and their family. So, you have to pay attention to all the things Kelly was saying. You have to reach out to other people. You have to explain what's going on in yourself so that you are not working your things out with the people you're taking care of. Mm. That is so important. When a person who provides hospice care or end-of-life care somewhere has their own grief, you can't work that out with the people you're caring for. Uh, it, they, a, that's unethical, and B, it's really important that you get your own good care. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just add that to what and you hospice said. Hospice groups um, generally are required to employ spiritual caregivers, chaplains, mm-hmm. who have a completed clinical pastoral education, yes. a clinical program of training and a vetting so that um, we have a we're certified to be able to provide care, and we understand those dynamics because we can do a lot of harm mm. if we aren't taking care of ourselves and if we're um, taking advantage of situations in order to work our own feelings out. Um, that would be the worst-case scenario. And so we're, we're, um, we're trained to be able not to do that and to know where to look for to be healthy. Right. Boundaries are essential in this work. Um, that you understand the boundaries um, and that you stay in your lane. <laughs> and um, I think that you do uh, exercise self-care. Uh, we actually have an in-service periodically on self-care, and uh, it helps us all remember that while I'm caring for this patient or these patients and these families, uh, I need care myself. And when you're not on duty, turn off your phone, take your PTO, go for a walk, make sure you get your vacations, go to worship, make sure that, that you have really good limits on, on when you're on duty. Well, as a final question, what are the myths that people have about hospice care 
and what is the truth that you wish they would know? Well, often people are afraid to engage hospice care. Many, many people don't know what the word hospice means. They have limited experience with end of life. Most people haven't been in the room with a dying person. And so it's just scary to people. And they resist coming on to hospice service uh, because they just think if we don't become hospice patients, then he won't die. Or they think um, that we're going to begin a series of uh, medications that are going to bring about the death, which is, of course, illegal, and we never do. Um, or they, yeah, or that we might starve a patient because once a person enters hospice care, that means we are not going to feed them or give them something to drink. I've heard that more times than not. The reality is that as people are reaching the end of their lives, they... Um, often stop eating and they stop drinking, but they're doing that because that's a natural process, not because someone is starving them. So I've heard time and time again, hospice starves people. <laughs> and what I say to folks is that if, if that person who's a patient says, you know, what I really want is a Big Mac, French fries, and a chocolate milkshake, any hospice employee is running to McDonald's mm-hmm. to get a Big Mac, mm-hmm. exactly. uh, French fries, and a chocolate shake. And what what happens is that um, starving means I will not give you food. I'm going to withhold it from you. That's starving mm. someone. And nobody in hospice is ever going to do that. Um, are we going to honor when a person says, I don't want anything else to eat or drink, or I just want a bite? I want a bite of pudding, and that's all I want. Um, Because often people have equated that eating means that person's going to get better. And that is not true. Or they feel like they're not taking good care of them if they don't feed them. They feel guilty if they don't make some food for them and make sure they eat. Um, And we use morphine. And sometimes the only experience of morphine people have is from war movies where soldiers on the battlefield get it and it, you know right when they're dying, and so they don't feel the pain of death. or And people think that it kills them. And uh, we, just, we just don't use it in any way that would, that would possibly hasten death. Our job is not to hasten death. Our job is not to prevent death. Our job is to allow nature to take its course and keep you comfortable and able to be yourself and have good days, as many days as you can. Amen. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. You have given us vital insight, important insight. Uh, And so I'm thankful uh, for each of you uh, for doing this today. So you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b l u b r r y dot net 
to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.